If you would, join me now in turning to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, where we're going to spend the next few minutes, as it were, in a music appreciation class as we look at song number one. Uh, Before we do that, let's go to the Lord and ask for his assistance. Father in heaven, be pleased to make yourself known to us through your word by your spirit. Father, we indeed are hungry. You have promised to fill the hungry. So Father, fill us with the glorious truth of your word. May we see from your word that indeed joy has dawned not only upon the world, but within the hearts of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, when we're in the Psalms in the summer, uh, about every other Psalm, uh, we can reference that great question, what can miserable Christians sing? And of course, the answer is the Psalms, because there's a lot of Psalms that really come from misery, uh, difficulty, um, extreme circumstances. So what can miserable Christians sing? The Psalms. Well, what can joyful Christians sing? Well, the answer, of course, is the Psalms. Uh, They can sing God's word. And what we're going to see today as we look at Mary's song, the Magnificat, we're going to We're going to see that this is something that joyful Christians can and should sing, not because we're trying to make ourselves joyful by singing it, but because we are, and it's an expression of our hearts. Who remembers the call to worship this morning? You know, in it was a call to sing. We we heard this, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy. Sing praises to the Lord. Sing for joy. Now, in a worship service, uh, the worship of God is, is much more than singing, of course, but it's not less than singing. I mean, can you imagine a worship service without singing? It might be a lecture. It might be a wonderful oratory. It may be some, some good responsive readings, but could you imagine a worship service without singing? Well, as we mentioned last week, uh, it's the time of the year for the, for the music of Christmas, the sound of Christmas. Um, people in the church and outside the church are listening to Christmas music and singing Christmas songs. You know, if you look at your Trinity hymnal, you see that the largest section, and I'm fudging it here, it's a, it's a combined section, it's his advent and his birth, all the way from 193 to 233, it's all about Christmas, the incarnation, his advent, his, his birth. And so it's appropriate that this December, we're going to listen to and take a look at the four songs of the incarnation found in these first two chapters of Luke, two before the birth of Jesus and two after the 
birth of Jesus. And together, these four songs present what we're saying is the sound of the incarnation. Incarnation, not a word that we use that often, is it? It's somewhat mysterious, but simply it is this, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son becoming flesh, becoming man. And the incarnation reminds us that Christianity is not man becoming God, but rather God becoming man. As we will confess later our faith by saying, for us and for our salvation, the Son came for us. Reminds us that it's not the ascent of man. It's rather the descent of God to us, for us. We're in Advent, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God coming to man. And, and the titles for these songs of the incarnation are, are all going to be, as you will see, Latin titles coming from the Latin translation of the New Testament, the Vulgate. Today, the Magnificat by Mary. Next Sunday, the Benedictus by Zechariah. Following that, we're going from solo to the group with the Gloria in Excelsis Deo by the angels. And finally, it'll be Simeon singing the Nunc Dimittis as these songs of the incarnation come to a close. As you heard last week, uh, one commentator says this, the Songs here are the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. Luke, so far, we've been in the prologue. Luke shares his purpose and plan, the what and the why of his gospel. It's an orderly account so that you and I may have certainty. Last week, we looked at the prelude to the songs of the incarnation. It was an announcement of the conception and the upcoming births of two children of promise. John, remember the name means the Lord is gracious. And Jesus, the name which means the Lord saves. Here in that prelude was the transition from the Old Covenant or the Old Testament to the New Covenant, the New Testament. It's the transition point where promises made become promises kept. And we saw last week as we wrapped up that prelude that children, Christians are children of promise, not the fulfillers of potential. We hang our, our life on the promises of God, not on some potential that we may have. And we saw that as we looked at John and Jesus's, the announcement of their upcoming birth. So our approach to the text today is going to be like this. Uh, first, the stage on which Mary sings, and then the song itself. The, the stage on which Mary sings, and then the song itself. So let's consider the stage, uh, the visitation of Mary and Elizabeth. Uh, join with me as I read verses 39 through 45 of Luke Chapter 1. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, 
Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. First, we see Mary's greeting. Mary goes to meet Elizabeth. I mean, if you were writing the screenplay, somebody's got to play the virgin teenager, meets the former barren senior citizen. I mean, whoever's casting director has got to find somebody that can play those parts. The, the virgin teenager meets the barren old woman who's been promised and indeed is pregnant with a child. So you have Mary's greeting, but you also have John and Jesus meeting for the first time. In the womb, the two children of promise meet. The old covenant meets the new covenant. And there is joy. Not only does Mary greet Elizabeth, but Elizabeth turns around and blesses Mary. And this is a reversal here. This is kind of the hints of the bigger reversal to come. The elder blesses the younger. Now, wait a minute. Society in that day? No way. No, no, no. Children blessed. No, the younger blessed the older. But here is the reversal beginning. The, the older blesses the younger. And of course, again, there is joy when Jesus is recognized even before birth. You know, this is an atmosphere on the stage here in this house. It's an atmosphere of humility, of blessing, of joy. You see, when trust from Mary meets joy in Elizabeth, there's mutual encouragement, fellowship, Elizabeth's blessing produces a reaction from Mary. It produces a hymn of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving. Spend a few moments sometime again reading this and say, man, is the fellowship in, in our church like that? That you could have greetings and encouragement? You know, it's interesting that, that the last of the three blessings that Elizabeth gives is this, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Remember last week, how was Mary different from Zechariah? She believed, she trusted. You know, I think it's a, it's a natural tendency for us to like come up to one another and say, hey, good job for this and good job for that. And, and that's, that's great. I mean, the alternative is worse. But think about the blessing of, hey, I... I'm encouraged by your trust in the Lord. You're in a difficult situation, but man, your trust in the Lord is really a great example for me. Are we having that kind of conversations with one another? Elizabeth and Mary did. It was an atmosphere of humility, blessing, and joy. You know, Mary, the singer here, is on the stage. But we're now gonna listen to her song, and then open up and explore all four verses, verse by verse. It's a, 
music appreciation course, so to speak. In, in other words, at, at, at the beginning, the, the lights were illuminating the whole stage, and you saw the house and Mary and Elizabeth greeting. Poor Zechariah, can't talk, can't hear, off to the side, not even a player. Um, now the spotlight comes in on Mary. Even though we're going to go verse by verse, as it were, I want to read the whole song. I will not sing the whole song. Tempting though it is. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So the first verse of this song is verses 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary knew the scriptures. Mary knew the scriptures as she begins this song. Um, this is an echo of what we heard earlier from 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's song. And as we will progress through this hymn, this song, you will see that Mary quotes or alludes to Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. This song is poetry. It's a poem. It's a heightened form of expression. It says, slow down, think, meditate, savor, celebrate. And what does she say at the beginning? My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnifies is the first word in the Latin translation. It's how it starts. It's where the title comes from. And she says her whole soul and spirit, the very center of her being, her entire self, she is magnifying the Lord with everything she is and everything she has. She's enlarging her vision of God, showing his greatness, not her own position. Psalm 34, 3, the psalmist says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Mary, in this whole psalm, is really unfolding Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. To magnify, is Mary making God bigger than he is? No. 
God is great. Her vision is being adjusted to see the greatness of God. A a book that changed my life, and I would hope even today would still be used by God to change my life, is a book that I ran across in a church in a small town in Texas on the book table after the service. When people are big and God is small. All about the fear of man. If people are big, if your vision of people is great, your vision of God is going to be small. Ask yourself, is God in the foreground of your life or the background of your life? When you look out the windshield of your life, do you see God for who he is, for who he's declared himself to be? Or rather, do you see this person or that problem? What do you see? Mary says, I I see the greatness of God. You know, if you you want to interpret this first verse, uh, Mary's got the promise of a son, but did you notice she doesn't say anything about the son specifically? Why? Because she's looking beyond the gift to the giver. To praise God who gave the gift, who's giving the gift, who's made the promise. Mary, we will see, does not dwell on her own happiness. But rather she is rejoicing in the being and character of God. This hymn would have a hard time fitting on the bookshelf of a self-help section in the local bookstore. It would have a hard time fitting in a category of uh, you are the most important person, take care of you. This is on a shelf all by itself, in a section all by itself. Magnifying the Lord, rejoicing in God. Now in her song, Mary gives us the reason why she praises God, and she's got her reasons. You know, hope has its reasons, faith has its reasons, Mary has got her reasons because God is kind to the humble. He is just to the proud and he is faithful to his covenant promises. So verse two of the song is verses 48 through 50. God lifts up the humble. Verse two is God lifts up the humble. Let's listen to this verse. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. God lifts up the humble. Now, there is a general truth in Scripture, isn't there? We see it in the historical books, the wisdom literature. We see it in the prophets. We see it, of course, in the Gospels. We see it in the letters. We see it everywhere, right? It's what we heard in 1 Peter 5. It's also in James 4. But God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, a Christian faces some opposition, right? Who does the Christian face? Who are the opponents? Well, Scripture lets us know the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've got three opponents 
coming from outside and coming from inside that oppose us. Scripture says, don't add God to the list of opponents. Right? We've got to deal with the world that's coming at us, the flesh that's coming at us, the devil that's coming at us. Scripture says, don't place yourself in the position for God to come at you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a general truth, but here we have a specific personal example. Mary. Mary. Young. Female. She's all, she's recognizing that God has set his sights on her to recognize her, to lift her up, to bless her. Elizabeth said it three times, Mary, you're blessed. God doesn't bless the proud. He blesses the humble. And this right away is going to be a theme of Luke. We're going to spend a long time, not all at once, but we're going to spend a long time in Luke. And one of the themes that runs throughout Luke is that God is for the outsider and the outcast. God is for those on the outside and those who have been cast out and cast down. So scripture in general and Mary's song in particular declare that God lifts up the humble. But of course, there's another side to the coin, right? He brings down the proud. He humbles the arrogant. Twice in Luke, we will see later, Jesus is quoted as saying, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Twice Luke records Jesus says, If you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. If you humble yourself, you're going to be exalted. So the third verse is that God brings down the proud. Verse 2, he lifts up the humble. Verse 3, he brings down the proud. And we see that in verses 51 through 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away, has sent empty away. Here, Mary's song is moving from just an individual focus to now a corporate focus. Mary speaks for herself and she's also presenting the feelings of the community at the same time. And notice the verb tenses. He has shown. He has scattered. He has brought down. He has exalted. He has filled. He has sent away empty. Well, what's, what's going on? Promise is made. Promise is kept. Everything God said He will do, He will do. It's as if it's as good as done. Mary is expressing 
absolute confidence that what God has said will is true and will be fulfilled. If God says what he will do, it's as good as done. There's that already and the not yet. He has done this. He will do this. But the emphasis here is it's so certain, it's so sure. The verbs of the song are in the past tense. Now Mary's song now is revealing this great reversal that begins with the conception of Jesus. The the great reversal begins. You see, Mary understood that the coming of Jesus would turn not only her own life, but would turn the world upside down. Because she's becoming aware that this son to whom she is going to give the name Jesus, she and Joseph, is is the promised Messiah, is the Christ, the anointed one, the one who in Genesis 3.15 was going to come and take care of business. Because she, in this reversal, she knows that in Christ, God is going to take the conventional standards of greatness and significance and stand them on their heads. We'll see this. It's a key theme in Luke that that God exalts the humble servant. He humbles the exalted ruler. And all of these little reversals point to the greatest reversal of all, and that is the fact that God the Son becomes man, and He suffers the painful and shameful death on the cross as our children's catechism, or as our first catechism speaks of. It's that reversal It's where humility comes, then exaltation. It's suffering and then glory. It's the cross and then the crown. See, a good test for a Christian, a good test for a church is, do we have the order right? Do we have the order right? Do we understand that humility comes first, then exaltation, that suffering precedes glory, that we bear the cross before we wear the crown? In Mark, we saw where Jesus says, you know, to his disciples, the the Gentiles lord it over them, but not so among you. Whoever wants to become great, you go to the back of the line and you serve. Is that who Christians are known for being in this day, in 2022? Is this church known in Bellevue and in the surrounding area as a church that is willing to suffer so that God's glory can be displayed. A church that's willing to to take up our cross so that one day we will wear the crown. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British physician turned pastor, preacher, when he looked at this verse, he said this, quote, when the King of kings and the Lord of lords came into this world, he came into a stable. 
If you do not feel a sense of holy laughter within you, I do not see that you have a right to think that you are a Christian. Thank God this is gospel. This is salvation. God turning upside down, reversing everything we have ever thought, everything we have taken pride in. Why in Acts did we read that the disciples were turning the world upside down? Really, they were turning the world right side up. It's because the gospel came in the person and work of Jesus and in his message, and it turned the world upside down. Again, what do people see when they see us? Individually, as a church? Do they see people who believe that God lifts up the humble and he brings down the proud? Mary's song reveals how God operates with individuals, with churches, with nations. The humble are shown mercy. The proud receive justice. The lowly are lifted. The lofty are brought low. God lifts up the humble. He brings down the proud. And through it all, God remembers mercy. God remembers mercy. It's verses 54 and 55 with a hint that came with verse 50. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You see, the hymn's climax and conclusion, where this is headed is that God keeps his promises. The hymn ends by recalling that God's action For his people resides in his covenant promises. All the promises that God made to Abraham. Even the promise that was made that we see in Genesis 3. It's finding fulfillment now. God remembers his mercy. Verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him. A theological and spiritual mentor of mine once said when we were talking about prayer, if you can find a better prayer than God be merciful to me, a sinner, then pray it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He remembers his mercy. He never forgets his covenant mercy, his loyal love. A few weeks ago, we sang, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The covenant love, the faithful covenant, unbreaking mercy of God. The psalmist in Psalm 25 says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Isn't that interesting? 
You're praying, asking God to remember his mercy, and Mary says God has remembered mercy. You see, this hymn is a hymn of joy, is it not? Our hymn of preparation and our hymn of response is all about joy. This is a joyful hymn, and it's all connected to God's mercy. Years ago, when I was serving with the Navigators, U.S. military ministry, every couple times a year, I would see an elderly gentleman, his name Paul Drake, from San Diego, California. Paul had been in the 50s, a Marine enlisted man, and came to faith in Christ, and after that, devoted his life to helping people come to faith in Christ and grow in faith. And Paul, his health was declining through the years and his wife's health was declining and he was having to care for her and he had a number of other things going on. But Paul radiated joy. Radiated joy. And and you would say, how are you doing, Paul? Expecting, you know, well, this is happening and this is happening and we're dealing with this. But you know what Paul's answer to how are you doing? It was always better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. My friends, can we answer that question? Joy is because of mercy. Mercy not getting what we deserve. It clears the way for grace getting what we don't deserve. God remembers mercy. Mercy, our remembrance of mercy leads to joy. Church, how are we doing? Truly, we are doing better than we deserve. Are you? Well, the song ends and Mary leaves the stage. Look how Luke puts it. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Wouldn't you want to know more about the time together? She leaves the stage. But Mary cannot be ignored. Now, I'm not talking about paintings, statues outside a whole lot of houses in this area. Am I right? Mary greets me before I get to the doorbell. I'm not talking about paintings, statues, or even a church across the Licking River in Covington named, of all things, Mother of God. Now, if revered by the Roman Catholic Church in the Protestant world, at best, Mary is ignored and at worst, outright rejected. But what would, we, what would we be missing if we didn't listen to this song of Mary's and sing along with this song of Mary's? What would we be missing? Well, I believe at least two aspects of the gospel. The first aspect is this, the declaration of Jesus as Lord and Savior. People attempt to be their own Savior through religion, 
They attempt to be their own Lord through irreligion, either by keeping all the rules or by breaking all the rules. The the gospel shatters both religion and irreligion. You see, Mary, guess what, is not sinless. Why? God, my Savior. People who have achieved some sinless perfection or never been sinful to begin with do not refer to God as Savior. Mary needs a Savior. But Mary also, as we heard last week in verse 38, she refers to herself as the servant of the Lord. There it is. The gospel declares that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And the second aspect of the gospel that we see, I believe, is this. The declaration of the great reversal. The humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled. My friends, this is not how the world works. Is it? The gospel does not work according to the ways of the world. And notice that the gospel here is its own call to worship. The gospel calls us to sing. To sing Mary's song. And what does Mary's song do? It magnifies God. Who satisfies restless hearts. Who strengthens weak faith. Are you restless? Are you weak? Sing this song. Sing this song. Because singing helps us, what? Remember God's word, respond to God's grace, and reflect God's glory. So the question, my friends, today is not, has God given me a voice? The question for all of us is this, has God given me a song? Christians are people who have been given, among many things, a song to sing. And so what's your answer? What's your answer? How how do you respond to the good news of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the announcement of the gospel? How do you respond? Do you respond with singing? A song of joy coming out of an awareness of the mercy of God? Or do you respond not with singing, but with silence? May God be pleased to help us all recognize that even though we may not have a voice, we've all got a song to sing. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. It's the theme of our life. May this church be filled with singing people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for composing this song. Thank you for preserving this song. Help us, Father, in our individual lives as Christians and in our life together as this church to be a people 
who sing. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.